You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in the verses that Aubrey just read for us, verses 1 through 11. If you're new here, uh, welcome. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors. We're thrilled to have you at Citizens Church. Um, So I'm not usually sitting down. Uh, at this time, here's what happened. I uh, tore my calf muscle playing pickleball two weeks ago. And I wish I had a better story than that, but I don't. That's what happened. Uh, I was on crutches uh, a couple days ago and someone asked me what happened. And I said, I tore my calf muscle playing pickleball. And they said, isn't that the sport that old people play? And I was just like, hey, thank you. Thank- you got away with people. Um, we are 10 weeks into our In Christ series. Being a Christian means being united to Jesus. It means that you, Christian, uh, are united to his identity. What's true about him is true about you. You're united to his story, what he has done, is doing, and will do. And you're united uh, to his people. We are in Christ with one another. And really what we've been doing the past uh, several weeks is going to places in the New Testament that teach on union with Christ, uh, specifically places that use the in Christ language Uh, and just considering what they have to teach us about our union with Jesus. And and really, we've been doing that by asking three questions. What's a truth to embrace in Christ? What's a lie to renounce through Christ? And what's a step to take with Christ? Uh, The passage we're in this morning, um, uh, one uh, pastor called the New Testament, said, if the New Testament is like a mountain range, Philippians 1, or Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is one of the highest peaks And it's beautiful, but there is in Christ language in this passage. I wonder if you heard it when Aubrey read it for us. It says this in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to the Philippian church and he writes this section because what's happening in this church is people are fighting. Uh, In fact, some of the key leaders of the church are in conflict with one another. They're mad at each other. And so maybe that probably looks the way that it looks in our lives. People are talking about each other behind their backs and uh, giving people the silent treatment. And some people are taking other people's sides in the church and it's it's causing uh, division. And so that's what's happening. And that's why Paul writes this section. It's a good time to remember that even churches are filled with this kind of thing. Uh, Sin, conflict, gossip, fighting. Uh, Church people have a hard time getting along because churches are filled with people and people have a hard time getting along. In fact, Karl Barth, he's a theologian. He said, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. In other words, much of the New Testament exists because churches are filled with Christians and Christians are people and people have problems. That's That's a kind of comfort to me because I'm a Christian person with my own problems. And Thank you for not amening and kicking me while I'm down. Um, To these people who are in conflict, Paul writes and starts talking about the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what we're going to see. He's going to juxtapose two different kinds of minds. There's the proud mind and the humble mind. And, and when it uses the word mind, it really means a way of being, a whole mindset. And so it's the proud life versus the humble life. Um, and so he names their problem. In response to the fighting that's happening in the church, he names their problem. Underneath all that fighting is a pride problem. 
And I think we would be right in saying that pride is the human problem. At the heart of the first sin was pride, wanting to be God, live independent of him. Uh, Satan, who's God's enemy, he is pride on the prowl. One uh, preacher said it this way, pride is the culture of hell. And we're all infected with it. I think we know it. Um, Pride, at the very least, is one of those things that you know you can't say isn't a problem for you, right? Um, So how would it feel if I started the sermon and I said, hey, you know, we're going to talk about pride this morning, and I'm the most qualified person to teach on it. That'd fall pretty flat, especially those who know me. Uh, Or what if I invited you? Church, we are in a passage this morning about pride and humility, and if you don't need that kind of sermon, please stand up. What do you do? Well, you have to stay seated, right? Because even if you're the most humble person in the room, the moment you stood, you would then need the sermon, right? So I think we have that kind of a sense. If we think about pride, if we think about humility, generally, Christians and even non-Christians, I imagine, um, at the very least, no, we can't claim to not have a problem with pride. Our passage, though, invites us to think more deeply about it than that. Uh, especially to think as a people who are united to Jesus, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, Being in Christ means learning to imitate Christ. Uh, Being loved by him, forgiven all the things that we've covered in the past several weeks that are true, and being in Christ means living the way that Jesus lived. And Jesus embodied a truth that you find all over the Bible, but you see most explicitly in the life of our Lord. His, uh, Jesus' mom sings this truth in Luke chapter one. It says this, God humbles, who? The proud, and exalts the humble. That is the mind of Christ. That cadence to life. Jesus uh, had the humble mind. Jesus lived low and was lifted up by God. And when verse five says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ, that's the mind it's talking about. As those who are united with him, we imitate him. So here's a truth to embrace in Christ. To be in Christ is to be humble like Christ. Um, to live out of our in Christness, if you will, is to live humbly, to live low the way Jesus did, and to trust God to lift us up, to trust that God is the one who's going to exalt us. Look with me at verse one, and we're going to walk through these verses together. Uh, the section starts with a kind of curious verse. I want to read it and then talk about it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's going to make his appeal to living the way that Jesus lived. He's going to invite you who are in Christ to to live the humble life that Jesus lived. But he front loads the appeal with this verse. What does this verse mean? Uh, I love how Eugene Peterson translates it. He says this, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ. so, So think with me, you've been a Christian for a week. You've been a Christian for most of your life. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, If being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart. It's a verse that's trying to get our attention. Uh, Maybe we could put it into our own words like this, just simple words. If we care. If we care about what Jesus has done. 
If you care about who God is, if you care about what it means to be a Christian, that's, that's the language. He's going to invite us into living humbly like Jesus, but just so we understand the importance of it. He says, look, if Jesus really has a hold of your heart, you're going to care about this. And it raises the stakes on the whole idea of pride and humility. So hear me, a proud Christian does not believe what they claim to believe. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian, but the the absence of humility in the life of a Christian means the presence of a deep misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And God wants to make sure he has our attention as he talks about the humble way Jesus lived. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, if you care, then, then pay attention, he says. Look at verse two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Remember that word? Or conceit. Remember that word. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So here's our juxtaposition again, the proud life and the humble life, the proud mind and the humble mind. And so he's going to lean into this uh, proud life and, and, and unpack it. And he says two things mark the life of the proud, selfish ambition and conceit. It, it means empty conceit. We need to spend time on each of these as we walk through these. Oh, let's do something together. Um, let's see if we can see ourselves as we walk through this. Remember, if God has your attention, if you care, if his love has made any difference in your life, then the way that we would approach these verses is I'm going to see if I can see me and you should see if you can see you. The temptation is going to be to think of all the other people we know are like this, but no one ever grew in humility by being an expert on the pride in other people's lives, but blind to our own. Selfish ambition. Not all ambition is bad. Um, there's a kind of ambition that's others-centered. There's a kind of ambition that builds hospitals and plants churches and creates godly families. There's lots of good and, and, and God-honoring things that have been done in the name of godly ambition. So godly ambition is the ambition that runs on the glory of God and the good of others. Selfish ambition runs on the glory of self in comparison to others. It's not content with doing good it is only content with being better. C.S. Lewis helps us. He says this. I think this is out of mere Christianity. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Uh, we have a saying in the roller house. It's a thing that we have to say often. It's not a competition. Uh, because sometimes in the roller house, we have a way of turning things that are not a competition into a competition, and it's almost always unhelpful because it puts two people in the home against one another. And I, look, I love competition. I love uh, competing. Uh, I love watching competition. Go Rangers. We need this, right? But pride has a way of, of taking things in life that were never designed to be a competition and making them about 
Who's winning? Who's better? Who's worse? Uh, So marriage was never meant to be a competition, but pride looks around and wonders who has the better marriage, uh, who has the worst marriage. Parenting was never meant to be a competition, but most parents I know can name people that they think are better dads and better moms, and they feel shame about that. Friendship was never meant to be a competition, but we're sensitive to who feels closer to who and who spends more time together than they spend with me. Many of us, if we're in school, junior high, high school, college, every day can feel like a competition to win or lose. Um, Who's popular and who's not? Who's good at sports and who's not? Uh, Who gets attention and who doesn't? Who's dating who? Who likes who? Who's on the outside of all of that? Uh, Where we are in life, just our standing in life, whether it's our career or uh, the homes we do or don't own or our health, it's never meant to be a competition, but we think thoughts like, oh man, that person's further along than I am. Or, oh man, I'm further along than these people are. As if life is some sort of race against everyone else. Our life with Jesus was never meant to be a competition. But how often do we think of people who are not as Christian as we are? Or who are better Christians than we are? So Lewis um, makes, this is in a different writing, but he makes a distinction between pride and pleasure that I think is really helpful. Taking pleasure in something versus being proud of something. And so the humble, they find pleasure in the good. They find pleasure in being good. They find pleasure in the good parts of their life. The proud take pride in being better. So the humble can find pleasure in their life, their marriage, their kids, their friendship, their school, their career. They find meaning in all of that, and they find that meaning without having to look around at how it compares to other people. The proud only know how they are doing compared when they compare how they are doing with how everyone else is doing. You know the only, I think we've talked about this, you know the only competition commanded in the Bible? I learned this from, from Ray Ortland. Um, Romans 12.10 Outdo one another in showing honor. The only thing you're commanded by God to beat someone at is honoring them, encouraging them. So the humble life looks around and says, who can I honor? Who can I encourage? The proud life looks around and says, who am I better than? Who's better than me? How can I get ahead? That's selfish ambition. Empty conceit. I think in our translation that we read, it just says conceit. Some translations use a different phrase, like the New King James uses vain glory. And I think that's a helpful image. It's ironic because the idea of glory is weight. Glory literally just means heavy. It's something of substance. And so vain glory is conceit about something that has no substance. Uh, It's like being proud about something that's not actually there. Tim Keller says this about the idea. It means to be glory empty to be hungry for honor, hungry for respect, hungry for that kind of assurance because you don't feel like you're a person of importance. Keller wrote a short book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Yeah, it's free online and it's like 45 pages. You could read it in an afternoon. Um, he talks about our pride problem as a wounded ego, um, this sick sense of self that demands attention because it's unhealthy. So... Two, two weeks ago, I'm playing pickleball. Thank you. I don't, it wasn't even a joke. It was just, uh, just told you what I was doing. And you knew to laugh. Um, man, God humbles the proud, doesn't he? Uh, okay, so I'm playing pickleball, and I push off of my right foot running after a ball that I was never going to get to anyway. And, and it felt like something exploded in my leg. 
I immediately knew something was wrong. And because of that injury, I have thought about my calf muscle more in the last two weeks than I have my entire life. I've had more conversations about it than I've had in my entire life. It's been the main subject of my thoughts the last two weeks. And it affects most of my life right now. So just, so just, just today, just thinking about services this morning, I knew I needed to wake up earlier because I'm moving a lot slower. And that was all about my calf. And I, I knew I had to think about how to get on stage and how to do it at a time when most of your eyes are closed so you don't see me hobble up here. Uh, and I decided I needed to sit down on this stool, which I kind of hate, but it's because I can't stand too long. And I thought maybe I could stand and just preach a shorter sermon, but we all know that's just not possible. <laughs> and I will uh, probably ice it as soon as I get home today. And that's just this morning. Much of my today, day today will be oriented around thoughts like that. What's all that about? There's a hurt part of me that demands attention. I never had to think about it like that when it was healthy. Healthy things don't need attention like unhealthy things do. Keller's point, a healthy ego, a healed self, doesn't need all the attention, but empty conceit, vain glory, the, the ego that's sick with sin, and, and just to be clear, it's an ego that is wounded from the self-inflicted injury of sin. And it comes out as pride. And it feels, as a, as, a, as a wounded ego, it feels the burden of having to secure my own significance in life. I have to heal myself. And, and, and like an injured part of the body, it then becomes the thing that I've oriented my life around. It's what one author called the suffocating filter of self-referentiality. Meaning we interpret most things in life based on how they help or hurt my wounded ego. So here are some symptoms of a wounded ego. This, uh, the way that empty conceit comes out of our life. I'll name several because I don't want anyone to feel left out. In conversation with people, I am hyper aware of what they think about me. I say things that I may not even mean because I want to manage how their perception of me. Uh, I, you know, I'll scroll through social media and people's posts so other people's lives will make me either feel good about my life or bad about my life. I have a way of making every conversation about me. So I have to be the hero of every story or, or deeper than that, I have to be the hero of every relationship. I've got to be the hero of my kid's life. I'm hurt when other people are praised for what I think I should be praised for. So I, not, not only can I not outdo others in showing honor, but I quietly hate it when others get the honor that I want. I'm easily offended. Um, so I'm in the airport Tuesday, going through security with my crutches, and a lady behind me knocked her suitcase over and it fell into my hurt leg. And I made a noise that I'm really glad you weren't there to hear. And uh, here's the reality. If it had fallen into my good leg, it would not have hurt. That leg's doing great. It, it even kind of looks athletic right now. Um, <laughs> the healthy leg can handle the suitcase falling on it. The unhealthy one can't. The wounded ego is easily hurt by things that were not intended to hurt and wouldn't hurt if it was healthy. It's easily offended. Some things hurt because they're hurtful. Uh, when we're sinned against, it hurts and it's right to be hurt by, by hurtful things. But some things hurt because we were already hurting. My wounded ego needed attention it didn't get in that hurt. It needed someone to be more careful than they were, and so I respond with my offense. That's pride. It, it might be more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. 
Here's another one. You might remember this from our wisdom series. Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his or her opinion. So empty conceit comes out as we assume the posture of teacher, even when we're not invited. We have lots to say and nothing to learn because something about our wounded ego thinks it will heal if we have all the answers and if we can just get an eager audience to listen to all of our opinions. It also comes out as being hypercritical. So the proud have a long list of things they criticize, but a short list of things they celebrate. Pride often comes out then as fault finding in other people. I, I, can, I can see and say what everyone around me is doing wrong because to pass judgment makes me the judge and being judged feels good to my wounded ego. It can even come out, friends, in our serving uh, where we serve others, but the reason we serve is in order to be seen. Uh, humble service is shy. It's okay going unnoticed. Proud service is sensitive. It wonders who's watching, and it doesn't make it very long without attention. All those, all those are a short list of symptoms of a wounded ego that we could easily fill in more and more. It's the proud self. Okay, um, I see myself. I see myself, goodness, uh, in the selfish ambition, I see myself, in the wounded ego, the empty conceit, I see myself. My own ego is a lot more like my hurt leg than my healthy one. Do you see you? Do you see yourself? And do you notice how, oh goodness, pride can come out in a couple of different forms. So in another place, C.S. Lewis, he has this famous quote about humility. You may have heard it. Uh, it humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So there's a pride that's puffed up and stands tall and holds your head high and says, I'm the best. And there's pride that shrinks back and, and shoulders slumped and hangs its head and I'm the worst. Self-conceit and self-contempt are both forms of pride. Because whether I think too highly of myself or too little of myself, I'm still thinking about myself. All of my thoughts oriented around me. So here's a lie to renounce through Christ. Please hear me. The lie to renounce through Christ is I have to prove my worth. I have to prove my worth. Because that's the lie underneath so much of our pride. I'm responsible for my own significance. And when I feel like I'm doing a good job, I'm conceited. And when I don't feel like I'm doing a good job, I'm deflated. And that lie will lead us to either self-conceit or self-contempt. It will lead us to self-exaltation or self-hatred. And, and look right at me. That's not how the gospel of Jesus works. That's not how it works. You don't have to prove your worth. Do you remember the story Jesus tells in Luke 18 about two men who go to the temple to pray? One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. They're two very different people. And in the temple, they pray two very different prayers. The Pharisee, who's like a professional God follower, uh, he says, thank you that I'm not like other men. Oh, that's selfish ambition. I'm better than, I'm winning the competition of loving God. I fast, he says, I, I give, I do all, everything right. I do all the right things. So that's empty conceit. So he goes to pray and he tries to heal his sin-wounded ego with his own effort. The tax collector, oh, he, he's an outcast. He's a well-known failure at following God. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His eyes are off self 
They're on God, and he asks a merciful God to show him mercy because he needs it. Here's what Jesus says about those two prayers. In verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, right with God, loved by God, accepted by God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the very heart of becoming a Christian. This is the very heart of conversion. A Pharisee brought all of his own self-made worth and with his hands full of his own pride, he offers it to God and he leaves full of himself but empty of God. The tax collector comes with nothing to offer but an honest prayer about his sin and God's mercy. And Jesus says he goes home accepted by God, loved by God. He offers empty hands to God and he leaves full of love and acceptance and worth. Christian, look, this is your story. At some point, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are in Christ, at some point you brought your empty hands to a merciful God and because of the good news of Jesus, you left filled with worth and value and the significance of forever remaining in the love of God. That's why in verse three it's gonna say, count others as more significant than yourself. It doesn't say others are more significant than you are. Everyone else matters more than you do, no. It's because of the immeasurable worth that you have in Jesus, you are free now to count others as more significant than you, as one whose significance is not on the line, not in question. My, this is our testimony. My wounded ego has found its healing in Jesus. It has been declared healthy by God and loved by God and cherished by God, not because I proved myself, but because my merciful God met my empty hands with love and worth that I could never earn, but he has generously given to me in Jesus. I don't have to obsess then about getting from others what I already have in Jesus. So, so hear this. If, if I were to try to tie it all together, the essence of Christ-like humility is not thinking more of myself, I need a higher view of me, or thinking less of myself, I need a lower view of me, but thinking of myself less, I need a view of something other than me. Here's a step to take with Christ. If humility is thinking of myself less, I need a view of something else. The step to take is this, turn your eyes to Jesus. See Jesus. Oh, it's what, it's what the passage does. In verse five, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it starts to poetically reveal the very mind. Look, uh, verse six is the beginning of a hymn that the church recited. And so Paul is quoting something that was, that was uh, a bit of a catechism for the church, a worship song for the church. It's all about the incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation of Jesus. But it does not, I just think this is stunning. It does not just tell you what Jesus did it tells you what he thought about while he was doing it, what was in his mind. How much would you learn about someone if you could know their thoughts? You may not want to. It kind of sounds scary, right? But how much would you know of someone if you could know their thoughts? And if you could know about their thoughts that there was not a single proud thought to find, how safe would you feel in that relationship? Uh, it would mean this. It would mean that they always say what they mean. 
that they do good because they are good. They never leave you wondering what they're really thinking or if their motivations were pure or impure. This passage, when it says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ, the passage says, look into the very thought life of Jesus and find pure, humble, other-centered love and let that steal your sight away from yourself and onto him. Oh, goodness, that God would would do that. Let's consider Jesus together with the time that we have left. Here's what it says. It says, he was in the form of God. It means he's fully God, at home in heaven, completely loved by the Father and the Spirit. Before there was anything at all, the Son was, always has been, always will be, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant He did not love his state as the pre-incarnate Christ more than he loved God and more than he loved you. And, And while he does not in any way cease to be God, the act of taking on flesh, of becoming a human, was a kind of emptying of self, a lowering of self. It's the opposite of empty conceit. He was filled with glory and volunteered to be a servant. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. He lacked nothing. We needed him. He did not need us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Oh, just think about what it meant for God to become human. How humbling it was. Uh, The one who had no beginning entered the world as a newborn, completely dependent on his teenage mom and working class dad. The one who thundered creation into existence by the word of his power had to learn how to talk. The one who set the very foundations of the universe had to learn how to walk. From birth, Jesus' life is in danger. The one who knew the security of eternity feels the fear of oppressive kings. Jesus says in his teaching, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The one who holds all things together doesn't have his own room. When Jesus was older and he went to his hometown, he was mocked by the people he grew up with. The one who was worshipped by angels is made fun of by his neighbors. Jesus' cousin John is killed by an angry king. Jesus' friend Lazarus gets sick and dies, and he grieves each loss. The one who knows the joy of heaven cries the tears of earth. That's just his life before his death. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, He knew Death was coming, not just death, the most humiliating form of death, crucifixion. And if we're welcomed into our Savior's thoughts, think about this. He woke up one morning knowing what was coming, and he still chose to live that day. Knowing today is the day Judas betrays him. Today is the day his disciples scatter from him. Today is the day the guards arrest him. Today is the day his suffering began. He woke up that day. And he knew he would be beaten, the face of God with black eyes and a bloody lip, the back of God, torn flesh and exposed bone. He knew he would be mocked, thorns and spit, crown the head of God's anointed. He knew he'd be humiliated, the one who never entertained an immoral thought, stripped naked for the entertainment of his enemies. He knew he would have to see his mom mourn her son, and he knew he would feel forsaken by his heavenly father, and he knew the very source of life would give up his spirit and death. And when he had all the power to say no to all of that, Matthew 26 says he could have called an army of heaven to rescue him and protect him, and instead of using his power to protect himself, he lays down his life. He volunteers for humiliation and death. Why? Because there was not a single shred of pride in him. 
only humble love. And he counted you and me as more significant than himself. What does he deserve? The one who would do all of that, what kind of honor does the humble God-man deserve? Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The worship is his. The adoration is his. The attention is his. Let me ask you something. In all of that time hearing about Jesus, were you thinking about you? When we hear about the courage of his incarnation, the humility and love of his cross, the pride-free mind that bled and died that we might live, it just leaves little space for us to get the attention. When I think of Jesus more, I think of myself less. And that's the point. That's the heart of humility. When I think that all creation is moving towards the every knee, bow, every tongue, confess, worship, service, and honor of our humble king, it just leaves less room for self-conceit and leaves less room for self-contempt. In church, we are the people who do not wait for the end to bow our knee and confess with our mouth. Jesus is Lord. We are convinced now of what all will be convinced of then. And it humbles us. Humbles us. To be in Christ is to be humble like Christ. Goodness, you don't have to prove your worth. God has filled your empty hands with all that you need in Jesus. So eyes off of our wounded ego and eyes fixed on our humble Savior. I'll say our catechism with us, and we'll pray. Citizens Church is a people who are in Christ. What is your only comfort in life and death? Lord, we love you. Jesus, you are Lord. King of kings, fully divine, fully human. We just don't have enough to offer you not enough worship, not enough obedience. Oh, how beautiful that, that your word peeled back the curtain and revealed a life free of any shred of selfishness. And had there, had there been any, oh, just a splinter of pride in you, we'd be lost. We'd have no shot. But you thought of us because you love us.
you love the Father and the Spirit, and you love your people. And so we thank you. We, we are the people who, uh, who live bowed lives now. And we are the people who uh, open our mouths and confess that you're King of Kings, and this is all about you. Um, and you know, if I just speak for me, God, I, I need to be humbled in my self-conceit and I need to be humbled in my self-contempt. You know the room, God, maybe there are those who have exalted themselves in their life, their mind is filled with self-conceit and they parade around their wounded ego in a way that makes life all about them. It is your severe mercy, God, to use all of the sovereignty at your disposal to humble them. And Lord, you know those in the room who their life is given over more to self-contempt. Maybe it would even be a, a kind of self-hatred. And Lord, what they need is they need a fresh reminder of your love and their worth in you that would pull them out of commiserating and would pull them out, God, of slumped shoulders and it would lift their face to the glory and beauty of our King. We need you, God. We need less of ourselves, more of you. Uh, we are offer our eyes, God. We love you.